0: Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast, brought to you by Norton Rose Fulbright. My name is Arup Sen, and I'm joined as ever by Simon Lovegrove. Hello, Simon. Hello, Arup. In this month's show, we will be speaking to Celia Cohen from our New York office about privilege, particularly uh, in the context of internal investigations. Uh, We then hear from Kat Pluck and Joe Smallshaw, both members of our contentious financial services practice here in London. And they'll be talking about the recent Frencham case uh, with the FCA, which was concerning non-financial misconduct. And finally, we close on a section uh, on AML and CTF risks relating to cryptos, which will feature Lisa Lee Lewis and Nabila Begin from our risk consultancy practice in London. But before we kick off, over to Simon for the big RT stories of the last month. Thanks Aroop, there's been a lot going on this month, but if
1: I were to start in Europe, the highlights would include the European Securities and Markets Authority issuing a report on algorithmic trading. And also there's been a consultation paper on the MIFID II best execution regime. Also staying with the EU, a number of delegated regulations under the investment firm Prudential regime have also been published. Then moving across the pond to the United States, Our readers may have seen that we've issued a client alert where high-level officials at the Department of Justice are warning that the DOJ is surging resources in a new effort to combat corporate crime. Then, close to the home in the UK, there's been a couple of Dear CEO letters, including one from the FCA on wealth management and stockbroking supervision strategy. Also, the PRA has issued a number of papers on capital adequacy covering the UK leverage ratio framework and trading activity wind down. Finally, two other items worth noting this month was a new FCA webpage setting out the regulators' expectations of firms engaging in remote or hybrid working. There was also an interesting FCA speech on consumer credit where amongst other things, it was mentioned that we will soon see a HM Treasury consultation on the proposed regulatory framework for buy now, pay later. In terms of key events for the remainder of this month, it's perhaps worth noting three things. First, on the 15th of October, the limit for contactless card payments rises to hundred pounds. Second, on the 25th of October, consumer credit firms must start using the revised versions of the FCA's consumer credit information sheets. And third, at the end of the month, on the 31st of October, The FCA's temporary guidance for borrowers of maturing interest only and part and part mortgages, which enables them to delay repayment of capital on their mortgage that expires. So that's
0: a brief canter through the highlights. Back to you, Rup. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Simon. Um, Lots to uh, tuck into there. And just a reminder to our listeners at home, do uh, log on to RegulationTomorrow.com for your daily updates of Financial Services Regulatory News. But without further ado, over to Simon and Celia Cohen, who will be talking about privilege.
1: When it comes to multi-jurisdictional investigations, a key challenge for in-house counsel is to maintain legal privilege. Legal privilege has always been a hot topic, particularly in the United States, and today I'm very pleased to be joined by Celia Cohen, a partner in our New York office. Celia, it's great that you're with us today and to give us your thoughts on this particularly interesting topic. And to start off with, I want to start with a very basic question. Why is privilege in investigations an important topic?
2: Hi, hey, Simon. Thanks so much. Privilege is one of one of the oldest things in our in the legal system. Um, and it allows Um, clients to confide in their lawyers without worrying about what they say, which allows lawyers to better defend uh, their clients or better represent them. Um, And the same with companies, Um, it allows the, the lawyers to conduct the work and see what's happened without worrying that everything they do is going to be seen by the government or seen by the other side or what have you. And we're talking now both about when you say legal privilege, about communications with clients, as well as work product privilege, which protects the the work that you do in connection with the case. And I think what is interesting about investigations is that it's a little trickier because in a litigation, if you know from the beginning, you know, you're going to file a suit on behalf of a client, everything that you do for that client, the discussions you have are for the purpose of preparing for litigation. And so it's a little bit easier in those instances to protect privilege because essentially privilege has to be, you know, a communication is for the purpose of providing legal advice. And, and the document, again, is more product is for the purpose of preparing for a case. So it's a little bit more obvious, and it is less challenged, uh, at least um, in the United States and I think abroad in terms of when you have an actual case going on. With investigations, it is tricky because a company may be having a lawyer investigate an issue, but the problem is, is that there may be a lot of other purposes that that investigation and the information hold from that investigation may be needed in other areas of the bank. For example, compliance. Compliance needs information from the investigation to to do their job, um, just as human resources needs the information to make decisions about employees. And you might have internal investigators who are not lawyers who have also some kind of, um, at least in the United States, suspicious activity reports or the comparable one um, abroad. And so that's why it's very difficult because how documents are shared around the company may lead to waivers. And I think that this is interesting because obviously, you know, people clients or companies do not want to um, be in a position where they're unknowingly waiving it. So you need to be really careful about what you're doing and how you're protecting them. And also investigations, as you mentioned at the beginning, um, even if it's in one jurisdiction, sometimes um, spread to other jurisdictions and, you know, or are multi-jurisdictional from the beginning and so in those cross-border investigations you need to know the nuances about each country um, and be treating the information trying to be the most conservative about the information for the the most conservative countries to protect it.
1: Okay that's really helpful Celia. I just want to move now to uh, another important aspect of this. What are the limitations concerning attorney-client work product privilege
2: look, I think that privilege, you have to be careful um, because the extent that you call everything privilege, right? Just because a lawyer, let's say, is copied on an email, and this happens a lot of times at companies, that does not necessarily make the email privilege. And so, that aspect, understanding that, is important to understanding uh, the limitations of privilege and making sure you protect things that need to be protected. For example, you may have um, a lawyer on there, and the business, and the business is talking about business decisions, and they're copying the lawyer. That doesn't make it privilege. What makes it privilege is if the lawyer is being asked a question and ha- needs to provide legal advice, then that would be privilege. Same thing in a document if. Now, typically, in an investigation, if it's just a lawyer and client, and the client is telling the lawyer what happened, the entire memo will be privileged. Uh, However, to the extent that information from there that memo is shared with other people at the company, it could prevent um, it could lead to a waiver argument. So, when I was in house, um, I would always make sure that the lawyers added some mental impressions and thoughts um, so that we could distinguish it from other um, outlines that others at the company may need, which really just would have the facts.
1: Thanks, Celia. Uh, Just to move on to my third question now, how is privilege different in civil litigation?
2: Right. So I touched on this a little bit before. Um, it's, It's different, as I said, because the purpose of the investigation may not be just to provide legal advice. And I think what um, when, when you have a litigation, it's much easier. Everything is geared towards preparing for a case. Um, and that argument is, is much more solid to protect those communications. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a, an investigation, first of all, there are investigations that occur at companies when the government may not be investigating at the time, but you've got to think about what happens if the government comes and what needs to be protected by privilege. And so I think it's very different because you have to be um, very careful about which investigations you really need to be privileged and which ones do not. So if you have an employee issue where there's, let's say, Uh, a complaint about a manager's actions or something of that nature, you may decide that that is not necessarily that lawyers don't have to be on it. Or even if the lawyers do, you know, it's very important in that case for, let's say, the human resources people to be there. So the privilege, you know, if if there is a waiver argument, it may not be um, terrible for the company. So you may not take as many strong measures. And then the flip side would be another case where you know the government is coming in, or the government already has is there, or the regulators. And in that case, you know, instead of having well, the in-house lawyer can um, create privilege. You may want to uh, make the privilege ironclad in that instance, and hire outside counsel and do not have anyone present in the meetings who have a different purpose other than for providing legal advice. So just the client. And the lawyer, rather than the non-legal investigators, compliance or human resources. And then the question is, well, how do we get the information to those people um, so that they can do their jobs? And that has to be done very carefully. Um, it could be oral downloads with with um, specific facts that they might need, um, so that there's not this sharing of information through documents that could lead to a waiver argument. So I think it depends on the matter in investigations, but you have to be strategic. And um, because the extent companies call every investigation privilege, they're going to run into issues with regulators.
1: Okay, and one of the key questions our listeners will have is what should you do to protect communications work product documents during an investigation? What are your thoughts on this?
2: Yeah, I think that really, um, as I said, you need to be strategic. You need to look at the type of case, look at the communications and ask yourself if it really needs to be protected. The more you slap on privilege, the less protected it's going to be. It has to be um, thought out that this is the purpose of providing legal advice and what is that, what is that advice? What is this for? Um, and so I think that you need to be strategic about the cases and strategic about the way in which you share information um, to other stakeholders within the company, including the business, including compliance, including human resources. And then with respect to regulators, uh, I think that you need to be careful in terms of uh, many regulators do not like to hear that certain things are privileged because they're so used to the bank opening themselves up. Um, to their records. And so uh, they want you to cooperate um, and you want to be cooperative, but you don't want to um, give over everything that may lead to a waiver. So again, being strategic about it from the beginning. Um, in the United States, at least there is a statute that um, allows production to a regulator. Um, it's The statute is 12 U.S.C. 1828. And that's for financial institutions specifically, that they may share privilege information with certain banking agencies, federal banking agencies or the CFPB, the OCC, the Fed, um, state bank supervisors or foreign banking authorities. So they can do that without waiving privilege.
1: Um, You touched on this earlier. How can you maintain privilege whilst cooperating with the government?
2: Yeah, so um, th- that's a perfect question, because as I was just, just leading into that, really, because with the regulators, you're trying to be cooperative. Um, so th- so one way with the regulators is you can share it under certain statutes or try to get them the information they need in any way you can with, again, by differentiating um, documents with mental impressions and not turning those over. Um, when you talk about the, the government, as in, let's say, the Department of Justice, Um, They are not permitted to ask you to waive privilege. Uh, They're pretty respectful of it, but of course you need to convey the information. Again, it's important to be careful about it. Be mindful not to waive it to get them maybe facts without again disclosing the. um, Even though you know if the facts are obtained through an attorney-client interview, the whole thing is privilege. But if there's a way uh, that you can do it or that the facts could have been obtained in a different way and those disclosed to help with cooperation, um, that is a way to do it. There used to be an ability to give an oral download to the government that that would not waive privilege. But um, there has been a a case that, um, that basically now says that if you do that, you waive privilege. So you do have to be careful.
1: Thanks, Celia. That's really helpful. And just to finish, I understand you've been working on a new cross-border guide on legal privilege.
2: Yes, um, yes. Uh, At Norton Rose Bulbar, we put together a guide um, to handling, it's called the Legal Privilege in Investigations, and it touches on a lot of what I said, but is a great guide because it goes uh, country by country. And that guide can be found on Norton Rose uh, website specifically the NRF Institute, you can just register on there and download the guide and it, and it's great because if you do have a cross-border investigation and you're dealing with a jurisdiction you're not familiar with, you can just look it up and it has all of the basics um, and all of the extent to which uh, privilege applies in each of those jurisdictions.
3: Hello, my name is Catherine Pluck and I'm a senior knowledge lawyer specialising in contentious financial services. In this part of the podcast, I am joined by Joe Smallshaw, who is counsel in our financial services team in London. Hi, Joe. His practice focuses on regulatory investigations and enforcement. Today, we're going to be talking about recent developments in the area of non-financial misconduct. Joe, to start with, perhaps you can tell us a bit about the latest decision to come out.
4: Thanks, Kat. Yes, um, the Upper Tribunal has recently handed down its judgment in the case of um, Frencham against the Financial Conduct Authority, following the appeal of Mr. Frencham against the decision of the FCA to ban him from carrying on any regulated activities. The Upper Tribunal's judgment contains some interesting points that are likely to affect how the FCA approaches decisions as to whether individuals who are involved in non-financial misconduct are fit and proper. And it also contains some serious criticisms of the way the FCA conducted itself in these proceedings.
3: So so before we talk in more detail about the decision itself, is it worth giving a quick reminder on the relevant regulations in this area?
4: Yes, I think so. Uh, In the FCA handbook, FIT 1.3 sets out the factors that the FCA will consider when assessing whether an individual is fit and proper to perform a controlled function. The FCA has stated that when considering whether an individual is fit and proper to perform a controlled or senior management function, the most important factors are a person's honesty, which includes their openness in making self-disclosures, integrity and reputation, competence and capability, and also financial soundness. And it's the first of these, honesty, integrity and reputation, that was in question in the Frenchman case.
3: I see. And what approach has the FCA taken so far in cases of non-financial misconduct? This seems to be a current focus for the FCA. That's right.
4: Um, There have been a number of cases in which the FCA has taken action against individuals for non-financial misconduct, where that conduct either involved dishonesty or it was otherwise related to their regulated activities. For example, the FCA banned individuals for fraudulent activity or where their behaviour is impacted in some way on their professional role. Most recently, in November 2020, the FCA banned three individuals following their criminal convictions for serious sexual offences. In each case, the FCA concluded that they lacked the necessary integrity and reputation.
3: So what happened in the Frenchman case?
4: Um, On the 1st of October 2020, uh, the FCA issued a decision notice withdrawing Mr Frenchman's approval and prohibiting him from carrying out any function in in relation to regulated activities. The FCA considered that Mr. Frenchman was not fit and proper due to the fact that on 10th of March 2017 he had been convicted for a sexual grooming offence. As with the other individuals that were banned in November 2020, the FCA concluded that he lacked the necessary integrity and reputation. Mr. Frenchman then referred the FCA's decision to the upper tribunal. He contended that the FCA had wrongly applied the fit and proper test to the facts of his case on the basis that the conviction didn't relate to his regulated activity, that the conviction was not for an offence of dishonesty, and that there were, no dis, in, there were no indirect connections between the criminal offence and his regulated activity.
3: And what was the upper tribunal's decision?
4: Well, the upper tribunal considered a number of the authorities in the area of non-financial misconduct, and set out a number of principles that should be applied in relation to such decisions. In particular, the upper tribunal held that, that although there is an expectation that professionals may be held to higher standards than those that would apply to those outside the profession, a regulatory obligation to act with integrity does not require professional people to be paragons of virtue. Importantly, the upper tribunal concluded that provisions requiring professionals to act with integrity or to be of sufficient repute may reach into their private life only when that conduct realistically touches on the practice of their profession. Applying those principles to the facts of the case being considered, the upper tribunal concluded that there was a lack of evidence linking Mr. Frencham's behaviour to his professional role. Firstly, there hadn't been any evidence that Mr. Frencham had acted without integrity in relation to any of his dealings with his clients. Secondly, the upper tribunal noted that the FCA did not appear to have had any concerns in practice because it chose not to prevent Mr. Frencham from carrying on his business whilst it considered whether or not to bring enforcement action against him and it didn't exercise any of its supervisory powers during that time. There was a significant delay of nearly two years between the fact of the conviction being brought to the attention of the FCA and the FCA deciding to take action against Mr. Frencham. Finally, the upper tribunal concluded that the FCA did not submit any evidence to support the view that the failure by Mr. Frencham to act with integrity in his personal life posed a significant risk that he would likewise seek to exploit his clients. The upper tribunal noted that it would have been helpful for the FCA's assertions to have been backed up by criminological or psychological evidence. The upper tribunal therefore concluded that had the FCA's arguments been based only on the conviction, it was likely that the upper tribunal would have asked the FCA to reconsider its decision. However, the upper tribunal then considered a number of other factors and concluded that Mr. Frencham had failed to be open and transparent with the FCA by failing to report certain matters including the facts of his arrest and the fact that his offence had been committed whilst he was on bail. Based on these facts, the Upper Tribunal concluded that Mr. Frencham had decided to put his own interests before the need to comply with his obligation to be open and transparent with the FCA, and that the way Mr. Frencham dealt with those consequences of his conviction demonstrated lack of integrity, thereby entitling the FCA to exercise the prohibition power.
3: I see. And you mentioned at the start of the judgment, uh, you mentioned at the start that the judgment also contained some criticism of the FCA's conduct. Yes,
4: that's right. Um, The upper tribunal concluded that one of the FCA's witnesses was not the appropriate person to come to the tribunal to give evidence, as that person did not make the relevant supervisory decisions and was not responsible for the development of the FCA's policy regarding non-financial misconduct. The upper tribunal also noted that those witnesses who did attend were not properly prepared. One particularly interesting quote from the upper tribunal's judgment was that the authority has not shown the degree of candor, which the tribunal should reasonably expect, and which the authority would expect from the firms and individuals which it regulates, which, ironically, the authority maintains was not provided by Mr. Frenchman in this case. This is, of course, not the first time that the FCA has come under fire from the court. There have been a number of decisions of the upper tribunal in recent years that have criticised the FCA's conduct and litigation proceedings.
3: Yes. Um, And what do you think the uh, Frenchman judgment means to the FCA when considering non-financial misconduct in the future?
4: I think it's clear that in light of the upper tribunal's decision, in deciding whether to ban an individual based on non-financial misconduct, where there is no dishonesty, the FCA would need to consider um, that the individual's private conduct realistically touches on their professional practice. Um, In practice, the FCA is therefore likely to be much more cautious in taking such decisions, I will need to produce much more compelling evidence than they did in the Frenchman case to show that the individual's conduct in private impacted their regulated activity. If the FCA does decide to ban an individual, it will also need to act more quickly in future. In this decision, the fact that the FCA allowed Mr. Frenchman to continue to carry on his business for nearly two years without taking any supervisory action was considered by the upper tribunal as indicating that the FCA did not have any concerns in practice.
3: And presumably this decision may have implications for firms in relation to their dealings with individuals who have been convicted or involved in other non-financial misconduct and doesn't involve dishonesty or is linked to their work in some way.
4: Absolutely. And potentially this decision could have an impact on the decisions that firms have um, making in respect of whether a, a current, previous or for future employee is fit and proper Firms will have to consider whether non-financial misconduct that does not involve dishonesty and is not linked to the individual's professional role should be taken into account as part of a determination as to whether an individual is fit and proper. This could have an impact on firms' applications for approved persons, regulatory references for departing employees, and also firms' notifications to to regulators. However, in practice, we expect the firms will continue to act cautiously and will disclose in both regulatory references and to the FCA, where authorised persons have been involved in non-financial misconduct, particularly whether where an individual has been convicted of a criminal offence, firms should be mindful of their obligations to be open and cooperative with their regulators, and should probably err on the side of caution rather than leave themselves open to the risk of being criticised for not disclosing something which the FCA would expect to be made aware of.
3: I agree. Um, thanks, And um, This is an enforcement area which we are keeping a close eye on and uh, we will update further uh, with either a podcast or on our Regulation Tomorrow blog when any future decisions are published.
0: Now, in this section of the podcast, uh, I'm delighted uh, to be joined by Lisa Lee Lewis, who's Head of Risk Consulting Advisory in EMEA, and Nabila Begum, who's a Financial Crime Manager in the same team. Um, In this uh, section of the podcast, we'll be looking at upcoming AML and CTF changes, which UK crypto asset businesses should look out for, uh, as well as whistleblowing and enforcement trends, and finally an update uh, on the global AML CTF environment. So I will now hand over to Nabila and Lisa. Hello, Nabila.
5: Hi, thank you Arup. So we'll begin with regulation of crypto assets, so the regulation of crypto assets sector is still relatively new, are there any updates coming up that we should look out for Lisa?
6: Thanks Nabila. Yes, so in the UK, the HMC consultation on the amendments to the money laundering, terrorist financing and transfer of funds regulation has just closed. And if the proposals are implemented, will lead to key updates to the AML-CTF regulations of crypto asset businesses. The updates we expect to see relate to an expansion or clarification of scope of crypto activities and products. In particular, HMT's proposed travel rule, which was triggered by FATF's update on the existing recommendation 16, concerns cross-border and domestic wire transfers. Now, the travel rule requires that countries ensure that financial institutions send and record information on their originator and beneficiary of a wire transfer, and that this information remains with the transfer or related message throughout the payment chain. The idea is that this information will enable financial institutions to detect potential money laundering or terrorist financing activity by ensuring that the identities of the partners of the, to the tra- party to the transaction are known and can facilitate investigations by in- law enforcement by ensuring that appropriate records of these transactions are kept. Now, a number of queries have been raised around data privacy, around definitions, and scope of intermediaries.
5: Great. I think in addition to this, regulators and industry bodies are holding various roundtable events with crypto asset businesses and industry advisors to discuss the current and future crypto landscape, associated risks, mitigants and regulatory frameworks, including the opportunities and challenges that are presented around regulating crypto asset businesses and activity.
6: Yes, definitely, Nabila. This is a clear signal that the financial services industry as a whole is really looking to further understand crypto businesses more generally and the risk posed, but particularly what and how future regulation looks like in this area, which indicates that we will certainly see a number of updates and changes in the very near future.
5: Yeah, sounds like there's a lot to come, and I'm sure we will continue to keep you updated via our podcast and Regulation Tomorrow blog posts. Now to our next topic. Lisa, could you give us your thoughts on whistleblowing and
6: enforcement trends in the UK in relation to financial crime? Yeah, sure, Nabila. Thanks for that. So just to give you a bit of a summary in terms of the figures, in 2020, there are over 1,000 cases where workers raised concerns about... A wrongdoing or malpractice, and whistleblow to the FSA about a variety of concerns associated with potential regulatory wrongdoing in the financial services sector. Our concerns covered a wide range of topics, but ranged from AML, ABC, fraud, market abuse, KYC, compliance, and other areas. So it's likely that this trend will continue given the change in working environment. Similarly, between 2015 to 2020, enforcement action was taken against UK firms, which again concentrated uh, on a variety of financial crime systems and controls-related issues, as well as issues around retail and wholesale conduct, culture and governance. In particular, last year, the FSA issued 203 final notices. 187 of these were against firms and individuals trading as firms, and 16 against individuals. The FCA had used their enforcement power to secure 217 outcomes, of which 208 were civil proceedings and nine criminal. They had also imposed 15 financial penalties, totaling over 200 million pounds.
5: Okay, so that is very interesting. What would that signal in terms of things to
6: come from the FCA?: So it's clear that these failings in AML, ABC, KYC fraud and market abuse systems and controls, together financial crime failings will continue to be a core set of focus area for the regulators. And it is evident the regulators are willing to use all of the enforcement powers available to them. And bring civil or criminal proceedings against a firm and individual. Now we've seen a lot happen this year. The FSA stated that if required, the FSA will set standards tougher than the rest of the world. If required, the director enforcement at the FCA has made various speeches over the last year regarding culture and purposeful AML controls. The speech relating to conduct effectively took tone from the top and made it into the tone from within the firm. So the importance of purposeful AML controls explained the requirement to have controls in place that are designed and operated effectively and calibrated to each individual firm's risks. In addition, There were two DSEO letters, one in May on retail banks' financial crime control failings, and another in September on trade finance controls. Both of these letters emphasize common weaknesses in key areas of firms' financial crime systems and controls frameworks, such as governance and oversight, risk assessments, due diligence, transaction monitoring suspicious activity reporting. And persistent failings have resulted in regulatory interventions, such as requiring firms to appoint a skilled person to carry out a detailed review or business restrictions and or enforcement action by the regulators. Now, on our last topic, from a global perspective, Nabila, do you have some brief thoughts on what's happening in the AML-CTF environment?
5: Yeah, thank you, Lisa. So I'll take Australia to begin with. In September 2021, ASTREC, the Australian regulator, published four new Australian banking sector risk assessments relating to money laundering and terrorist financing. And this provided an overall money laundering and terrorist financing risk rating for the banking sector, which ranges from medium to high. The Austrex CEO, Nicole Rose, has stated it is vital that the banking sector in Australia uses these risk assessments to help them to protect their businesses. If we then take Canada, in June of 2021, regulatory amendments to the proceeds of crime, money laundering and terrorist financing regulations came into effect. These new amendments create and change the obligations of all financial entities. In the US, the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020 was substantially modified The US anti-money laundering laws. The most significant changes relate to corporate transparency, beneficial ownership requirements, subpoena power over foreign banks with US correspondent accounts, and enhanced incentives for whistleblowers. In the EU, we have the EU AML Action Plan as the key update here which we have discussed in detail in the episode 10. Back to Europe. Fantastic. Fantastic.
0: Um, thank you so much, Nabila. And thank you so much, Lisa. An awful lot uh, of, of uh, sort of developments there. So uh, definitely uh, something to keep an eye on. And hopefully uh, we'll have you both back soon to uh, update us on, on some of these uh, initiatives and developments. So thank you to both of you. Thanks to all of our speakers, and thanks to you for tuning in. Uh, Just a quick reminder, we've got a few uh, mini RT Plus podcast series out at the moment, so do look out for those. We have uh, the IFPR series, and there will be a follow-up series uh, to that coming out in due course. We also have uh, the Evolution and Divergence series, uh, which focuses on the markets regime in the EU and UK, uh, looking to see uh, how these markets, which are now independent of each other, how they evolve over time and what scope. Uh, that leaves or potential divergences. So do look out for that as well. But until next time, take care. We'll see you soon.